Hello, this is Dr. Dan Guerra, and this is Authentic Biochemistry from the Inland Pacific Northwest of the beautiful USA. Today is the 30th of July, 2020. So, I don't know if you caught it yesterday, but I did a video lecture on my other line, uh, YouTube type of uh, format, in which I was discussing the prenylation of certain proteins that are associated with the progression to pedocellular carcinoma. Now, the reason I did that lecture, the reason I'm bringing it up today, is because I'm going to fuse the video uh, line of inquiry, those lectures, with the audio line of inquiry, these lectures. Ultimately, I'm, going to, I'm talking about aging in my podcast, that is the audio podcast, and I'm going to be talking increasingly about lipid-associated cancer in the video lineage pro, uh, podcast. Now, the reason I'm doing that is, remember, aging, if you use a little bit of imagination, is essentially the contrarian to oncogenesis, tumorigenesis, cancer. Cancer is the immortalization of cells, or at least the immediate immortalization of cells. Eventually, they, of course, die. Uh, and then the movement of those immortalized cells through various vascular beds in terms of metastasis with most cancers, ultimately leading to multiple stages of morbidity and mortality in humans, one of the leading causes of death. Now, you'll note that cancer can occur at any age. Also note that it's not particularly a genetically um, inherited disease, although there are certain genes, such as in the breast cancer research, that if you inherit specific mutations in genes, you may be more susceptible to specific cancers. That doesn't mean that it's inherited, though. Cancer itself is uh, one of these diseases that you contract or that you um, fall prey to because of mutations that occur in the somatic tissue, not necessarily in germline, okay? So once you get a mutation or a series of mutations that can lead to uncontrolled cell division, that normally gets checked by the immune system, just as when you get an etiologic agent, such as a bacterial infection, can be controlled by the immune system. So the, the comparison between aging and cancer is one that I've developed for many years in my lectures teaching graduate biochemistry, that it's a good way to understand normal, healthy cellular metabolism by looking at the two extremes, either uncontrolled cell division, and that's the, then we can bring in all the intermediary metabolism we want to, particularly lipid metabolism, because that's the key to it all, um, and whereas aging is the slowing down, yet picking up mutations over time, senescent process, normally considered almost antithetical to rapid cell division and cell enlargement and metastasis. However, there are key features between the two. That's why I'm bringing the two lines of inquiry together. So I just wanted to, met, uh, to give a plug to my video lecture. You can pick it up on my Facebook page. It's my Dan Guerra Vera Med Facebook page, where I think many of you find these lectures. Um, 
and ultimately I'm going to bring the two together, like I said, I'm going to use then a major cancer and cause of death, although not the leading cause of death by any uh, measure um, in humans. And that particular cancer is one, though, that's interesting from a lot of perspectives, and that's glioblastoma. The reason it's interesting is that glioblastoma can hit very young people uh, and can also occur later in life. However, um, the, no, the, the more common disease that kills the elderly is not glioblastoma. It, of course, is diseases associated with neurodegeneration, and those include Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease. And even if we don't die from those kinds of disorders, we do have tremendous um, inhibition of normal sentient faculties. And that's, of course, a, a particularly worrisome response for most humans. Losing your mental capacity, lo losing your mental faculties is certainly uh, a much more powerful incentive to try to find a cure um, than living just naturally into old age and dying from even, say, heart disease or cancer. And so that's why there's a lot of research in Alzheimer's disease and neurodegeneration, particularly in the CNS. So again, this brings it all together where glioblastoma, a very rare cause of death, yet a very potent, deadly cancer that usually kills people within six months or a year after diagnosis. And ultimately, I want to develop uh, a dialogical event ontology, which is going to include the dialectics of what's occurring in disease states, and then bring that together as an event ontology so that you see the uh, the contrarian, non-contradictory association in living systems, particularly in the human. So with that huge prolegomena, let's get back to what we were discussing in Authentic Biochemistry audio. And we all know what that was, right? We're talking about delaying the aging response. I was telling you that there are drugs that are used kind of offline in a way to study the aging process. By that, I mean drugs that are targeting metabolic disease. We talked about acrobos last time on this feed. Now I'm going to talk to you about metformin. Metformin is commonly a drug that is prescribed for people that have type 2 diabetes. Now, the metformin's main site of action is in the liver. And it, it, what it does in terms of um, overall effect is it inhibits gluconeogenesis and glucose release, which is very common in diabetes. So this is one of the uh, targets in anti-diabetic drugs. So the main effect of the drug, remember I told you it's, a, uh, it's in a family of drugs called biguinides, and it will acutely decrease hepatic gluconeogenesis. That's where most gluconeogenesis occurs anyways. Uh, and it basically, it seems to have a mild but transient inhibition of mitochondrial respiratory chain complex 1, and that's the NADH the reductase. Now, in addition, resulting in decrease in hepatic energy status activates the AMP kinase pathway, which will turn on beta oxidation of fatty acids. So you get sort of two bangs for your buck there. You get a decrease in gluconeogenesis, a decrease in serum glucose, but you also get an elimination of free fatty acid, which is always good for obese people, 
who have an excessive amount of circulating fatty acid, either in the form of triacylglycerol or phospholipid, or just some free fatty acid associated with serum albumin. And so that can decrease, at least begin to decrease the amount of um, the, the excessive hyperlipogenic environment you have in the obese state. And obesity is definitely associated in multiple metabolic levels and physio uh, pathophysiological levels with uh, type 2 diabetes. Okay, so now let's give some biochemical details to metformin. And this is, this is uh, the way that the drug actually works. It has a high acid dissociation concept, pKa of about 12.4. So it exists in a positively charged protonated form under physiological conditions. And as a result, it can only marginally cross the plasma membrane, and that does so by passive diffusion. Thus, its intracellular transport is mediated by different isoforms of the organic cation transporter, also known as OCT. Uh, and that depends on tissue being considered. So OCT1 is found in the liver, OCT2 is found in the kidney. It's much more complicated than that, but that's a good generic uh, rule of thumb heuristic for right now. Now, once inside a cytosolic compartment, like in the mitochondria, that is where metformin actually is primarily doing its work. The positive charge of the metformin is proposed to account for its accumulation within the matrix, mitochondrial matrix of an energized mitochondria. And that's going to be driven by the membrane potential, right? The delta psi, whereas an apolar hydrocarbon side chain of the drug could also promote binding to hydrophobic structures, lipids, especially the phospholipids of the mitochondrial membrane. So you get the idea of where it's able to get, how it's able to get in the mitochondria and function. Now, though the exact mechanism of metformin still is argued, believe it or not, um, it's been shown that the drug does inhibit the mitochondrial respiratory electron transport chain complex one, and I've been saying. The unique property of this drug therefore decreases NADH oxidation since it's strict you at the beginning. So proton pumping across the inner mitochondrial membrane then slows down. Oxygen consumption rate also gets diminished because remember that you're going to ultimately turn, uh, you're going to reduce oxygen to water. That leads a low, to an overall lowering of the proton gradient and ultimately to a reduction of the proton-mediated synthesis of ATP. Now that then, because you have a diminished ATP synthetic process, yet you utilize ATP, metformin will then indirectly induce AMP kinase, which we've talked a lot about here in this studio, a lot in my lectures. And AMP kinase then is going to cause a switching from glucose metabolism to fatty acid beta oxidation. So metformin increases. Now that then will also alter cell fate. So it's been shown that metformin can increase apoptosis transcriptionally in cancers. And metformin, of course, blocks gluconeogenesis. And we talk about the Warburg effect many times in uh, my lectures. So you get the idea these two things come together. So we're going to leave metformin for now. We may get back to it. I just wanted to give you an idea of one of the drugs that people use um, in studies, research studies, to see whether or not it affects aging. Because the overall thing about aging is that aging, if you can 
do anything to it. Really what you want to do is decrease the morbidity associated with senescence, right? So sarcopenia, for example, that is a degradation of myocytes, right? Good muscle tone. People would like it if they had good muscle tone as they got older, right? Now, of course, one of the ways of maintaining muscle tone is to continue to work out, right? Um, but even when people work out, even some of these aging athletes that had really excellent uh, physical skills when they were younger, they can't throw the basketball as well as they could when they were 19, when they're 69, right? They can't run the bases like they could when they were 22, when they're 72. So no matter if they keep in shape, um, after a while, your body starts to senesce. And that includes all the cells in the body, including the muscle cells. Of course, what we've been talking about a lot extensively is the central nervous system. So and cardiovascular system as well. Now, here's another thing I'm going to talk about. This is nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide oxidized form, which is, of course, involved in the transport chain, and a class of compounds called sirtuins, which I've spent a lot of time both in my Verif Med video lectures and in my authentic biochemistry audio lectures. So remember that nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide, NAD precursors, such as nicotinamide riboside and nicotinamide mononucleotide have been reported to improve health span in rodent models for muscle aging. Also in the way that it's been studied in those systems, even cognitive decline is usually maze running tests. Now the mechanism of action there hasn't been too clear, but it may involve the activation of a sirtuin NAD-dependent protein deacetylase, okay, along with an enhanced mitochondrial function. So sirtuins are deacetylases. And so what, what do deacetylases do? They remove acetate, right, that two-carbon uh, carboxylic acid. They remove that from what? From proteins, covalently bound proteins to acetate. And the, of course, the substrate for the acetylation of proteins is acetyl-CoA, a very important primary intermediate. So NAD-dependent protein deacetylases remove acid. And when that happens to a histone, which are these basic proteins associated with chromatin, if you deacetylate histone, you turn chromatin into a complex that is less readily accessible to RNA polymerase II. That means you get less overall transcription. So if you inhibit a deacetylase, okay, like with resveratrol, which is a phenolic compound that's found in uh, fruit, particularly cranberries and grapes, um, if you inhibit the deacetylase, you increase the amount of acetylated chromatin and therefore enhance transcription because acetylation of chromatin allows you to um, you have more accessibility to the machinery that is involved in transcription. That includes RNA polymerase II and the single-stranded binding proteins that, that unwind double-stranded uh, duplex DNA and allow for transcription. So you get the idea that there's a push-and-pull system here. Okay. Now, okay, so I'm going to leave that behind now, the sirtuin story. That just I just introduced it to you so you get the idea where I'm going here. Let's continue on. What else is known about aging? What other things have we seen at the molecular level? Age-related changes in hormones in subsequent supplementation are very controversial. 
so you know about estrogen replacement after menopause. You know that that can cause cancer in some women, right? So that's not a good thing. Testosterone supplementation for uh, boxers and for uh, athletes, same thing. Excessive amount of testosterone has some positive effects on muscle tone, for sure, and even on mental acuity, but it also can render certain tissues more prone to auto-oxidation and to cancer, particularly if pe when people uh, dope with testosterone. So there's been this general interest in what is it in younger animals? What's circulating, let's put it that way, in younger animals? Is there anything there, the total, of, the total composition of what's in circulation or that is found in tissues and certain tissue types that makes younger animals young and the older animals old, okay? It's like the age-old question, the fountain of youth, right? So people have been doing studies now for quite a while, what are called heterochronic parabiosis studies. So heterochronic, so that means two different time signatures, so young and old. And then parabiosis, where you link two um, individual organisms together in terms of their circulation. I know it sounds a little bit like science fiction, but people do this with mice and with rats, okay? So these are called heterochronic parabiotic experiments. And that's where the circulatory system of an aged mouse is shared with that of a young mouse. And what is suggested that there are many humoral, that is blood-borne factors, that may actually have something to do with age-associated decline. In fact, efforts are underway to determine whether the transfusion of juvenile plasma can delay Alzheimer's disease in an Alzheimer's disease model. Now, this is not being done in humans, at least not in terms of um, passing all of the restrictions necessary to do experimentation like this uh, in America. So in aging, when you look at when an older animal is parabiotically hooked up to a younger animal, this heterochronic experiment in mice, you get in the younger mice, okay, decreased neurogenesis, impaired synaptic plasticity, and impaired cognition. Now, that means something's in the older mouse that's being transfused into the younger mouse in their sera. Okay? Now, that's kind of strange, right? Now, if you look at the other side, what's going on in the older mouse that's hooked up to the younger mouse, you get, in some experiments, rejuvenation. You get increased neurogenesis in the older mouse. You get an unknown yet positive effect in synaptic plasticity, that is neurotransmission, and you get an unknown and sometimes yet positive effect on cognition in the older mice. It's again doing maze runs, maze runs for older mice versus young mice. So this is really weird, right? But it seems that there are both um, non-peptide and peptide hormones involved in this heterochronic parabiosis. And I could talk a lot about that, but I would say those experiments, because they're done in only rodent models, are, are interesting and may reveal some important factors involved in old animals versus young animals. But it's not the kind of thing you can expect to be transferred to humans. And I would think that that would be a really unethical thing to consider. Uh, for example, people doping with uh, 
uh, juvenile serum into older animals. I just don't think that that's something we want to explore, except at the level of maybe understanding it in the rodent models. So that's where that is. But it has to do with non-peptide and peptide-type hormone transfer. That's one of the things that's been studied in these heterochronic parabiotic experiments. Now, there's also mitochondrial-targeted therapeutics, okay? This is no surprise because mitochondria is where you're getting all this energy production, right? Right. So what's going on here? Mitochondrial dysfunction is a major contributing contributor to aging and age-related diseases. Again, the mechanisms are complex. Interventions that augment mitochondrial function, bioenergetics and biogenesis, for example. That includes also uh, mitochondrially targeted antioxidants and NAD precursors. All of that's being examined, okay? again, in animal models. Now, we're going to get into that in more detail because mitochondria play a major role in autophagy and in apoptosis, both. So autophagy, remember, is a reorganization of the cell, allowing it to continue on. And if a cell continues on when it has picked up mutations, that can lead to cellular proliferation of of mutant lineages that could lead to tumorigenesis. However, autophagy also allows the cell to repair and go on, not necessarily to divide, but to go on to function, right? So we'll get into that in more detail because mitochondria and also peroxisomes play a major role there. Let me go on a little bit more here and finish this lecture for now. A third key feature about aging is this whole discussion of telomeres. So senescent cells accumulate during aging and they secrete factors that promote inflammation and cancer. Okay, so these are senescent secretory systems, which I talked about about a year ago in the Authentic Biochemistry video lecture. So we're going to get back around and revisit that. Now, telomere dysfunction is a major cause of cell senescence. It's been known for a long time in, again, um, experimental uh, animals like C. elegans. So genetic and pharmacological strategies to target and kill senescent cells, would that enhance lifespan? In other words, get rid of the senescent cells, would you then have a continual genesis of younger cell lineages or a maintenance of the younger cell lineages? So this has been studied in animals. So for you to understand that, you have to know something about telomerase and senescence. The somatic cells of humans show a limited capacity for proliferation in cell culture. That's called the Hayflick limit, and it's about 24 divisions, and they start to senesce. Now, that corresponds also, interestingly, with aging with the organisms. That's the Hayflick experiment. Uh, Hayflick is the name of the research and study, the limit of cell division in human cells, in culture. So phase one, cells grow rapidly when placed in culture. Uh, and that is 30 to 60 different um, uh, uh, um, uh, divisions or cell cycles, right? Then cell growth rate slows after many population doublings. So you get this population doubling, and then you get a phase two where cell growth rate slows, okay? Now, this isn't all the cells that are going to go through population doublings. This is just some small group of cells. So still the Hayflick limit looks like it's about 24 cell divisions 
in total of all the aggregate of cells that you get in a population, right? Phase three, then the cells stop growing altogether and they can never enter the cell cycle. Okay. Once again, however, cells remain viable for some extended period of time. So we don't know what all that entails, but we know something about it. So the number of population doublings that occurs before cells become senescence varies with the cell from different tissues. Cells from young, also from age. Cells from younger individuals divide many more times than cells from older individuals. So that does suggest that all somatic cells are capable of a limited number of divisions. Thus, cell senescence may contribute to organismal senescence. This is the whole Hayflick limit analysis. Now, telomeres and senescence, this is where this came into, into vogue and where we began looking at it, okay? I want to make sure I don't have time here. It looks like I think I still do. So let's keep going with this. So one trigger for cell senescence is the shortening of the telomere. Now, telomeres are short repeats of DNA, and the sequence is GGGTTA on the ends of chromosomes. They basically are considered to form a cap at the ends of chromosomes. They protect the ends from being degraded by nucleases. Each time a cell divides, it loses about 100 base pairs of telomeric DNA. Telomeres are about 10 kilobases long in embryonic cells. But after about 80 cell divisions, telomeres wear down to only two kilobases. This is where you start to get then chromatin degeneration. It's thought to be a minimum length, about 2,000 base pairs, and that starts to trigger senescence. So the enzyme telomerase is a reverse transcriptase, actually, and it restores telomeres. The enzyme is active in germ cells and in stem cells, but activity is not detected in most somatic cells. So telomerase is reactivated, interestingly, in cancer cells or so-called immortalized cell lineages. So an experimental introduction of telomerase into aging human cells, and this is just cells in culture, right? can prevent senescence and lead to a form of cell immortality, again, in cell culture, not in animal systems. So if the telomerase gene is knocked out, mice develop problems after several generations. Their telomeres become too short. They lose fertility first, then they lose and are more susceptible to several other cell divisions and in cell maintenance. And, and also they become far more susceptible to disease. Mouse telomeres are much longer than are needed, so believe that it's not just telomere length that has a role here, but it has something to do with telomerase activity. Remember, adding back those ends. Right? A lot has been studied here. So you can ask the question, I'm going to stop here for today. Why don't all cells maintain telomerase? If this is the case, why wouldn't you just think that it would be useful to maintain the telomerase? Well, it looks like it might be a safeguard against cancer. Um, and that is because if human cells live too long, they accumulate mutations due to all the oxidation and also sometimes because of environmental carcinogens. And those mutations will accumulate slowly. But after about 24, 25 cell divisions, they start to really increase. And that's because of decrease in DNA repair. Right? 
So DNA repair goes down, mutations continue to accumulate, that can lead to an oncogenic event. That might be one reason why cells don't maintain the telomerase activity. So I want you to keep that in mind as we go through uh, a further discussion. Again, this isn't a series of lectures that's going to just be about these major factors. I've been giving you a couple of things, sirtuins, I talked to you about oxidants, now I'm telling you the telomere story, right? None of these has panned out has been universal and necessary for cells to maintain any kind of, for example, juvenile longevity. So that's not the only story there. I started telling you about those parabiosis experiments. Another feature, the serum in younger animals will not keep older animals alive that much longer. It only seems to cause some mechanistic changes, right? Um, such as a, a slower uh, decline in muscle senescence or sarcopenia, but doesn't make them immortal. So there's way too many factors to consider that these factors alone play a role. And I just told you about the last thing. If you have a lot of telomerase activity, you pick up more mutations and you start getting cancer. That's another whole concern, right? So we're going to continue on this. Uh, I'm going to go back and forth between video and audio. So I want you to know where I'm going. Again, this is Dr. Dan Guerra coming for you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios on the 30th of July, 2020. And I'm saying bye for now.